Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I am Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode six, our seventh episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Marilyn Ritchie, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, it's been a lot of adjustment getting used to working from home during this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, at this point when we're recording, I've been home for eight weeks, and that has been a lot of adjustment, not so much for myself, but making sure that my lab was completely set up for working from home. You know, as informaticians, we are in a, a fortunate position where we can do our work from anywhere, so I do feel like the people in my lab have continued to be really productive during this time while we've been at home. But that first couple of weeks was, you know, a lot of effort just making sure everybody had, you know, knew what to work on, access to the things that they needed from home. We had a few remote desktop machine connection things that we needed to work out. And so first couple of weeks were, were spent doing that. But now I think everybody's really in a rhythm of working from home and, and that's been going well. Also making sure that everybody's okay. I've been doing a lot of one-on-one check-ins with everyone. Many of the folks in my lab live alone. And so now that they're working from home alone, it's a lot of kind of time and isolation. So I've just been doing a lot of check-ins to make sure that everybody's okay. I've also been working on a COVID-19 patient survey and recruitment strategy for the Penn Medicine Biobank. You know, one of the things that we realized early on is that there are some data around COVID-19 that you would want to collect that are not routinely captured in the EHR. And so we worked in collaboration with Columbia University and several other CTSA sites to put together a patient survey that can be deployed in REDCap. And we actually just deployed it uh, this week. And it asks patients questions about their COVID symptoms and pre-existing conditions and medications. And it's an effort to try to get some patient reported information to integrate with their EHR data. And then because they're biobank participants, we also hope to have DNA samples on them, which will really give us some, some unique opportunities to look for the relationship between host genetics and both risk and protection in COVID-19 after exposure to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but then also to look for relationships with uh, COVID-19 outcomes and disease severity. So I'm really excited about this project. And then the last thing, I've been doing a ton of writing, Um, not my own papers, but I guess I should say editing papers, because 
all of my trainees have had time at home, many of them have uh, kind of gotten to their papers on their to-do list that have been there for quite a while. And so we have been writing and editing and submitting papers, actually quite more than I thought I would be able to get done, um, given that because of the COVID-19 work, I'm also on a lot of Zoom calls and Blue Jeans conference calls. Um, so between Blue Jeans calls, Zoom calls, and writing papers, I, I think that's that's the main thing that I feel like I've been up to. Jason, what have you been up to? Well, I've also been very busy with the COVID-19 response, but first let me say that I'm very pleased with how my group has transitioned to working from home. It's been pretty seamless. We had, you know, maybe a week of transition time and a few people needed certain items to, to get set up in their home office. But other than that, I, I would say we're, we're clicking along pretty much close to 100%. Um, so it's been good. I think one of the surprising things for me is that uh, I uh, do not have as much time to work on other projects as I thought I would when we first started this. I just imagined having multiple hours during the week open when I'm not running between meetings, et cetera, that um, I could use to get other things done. But uh, because of COVID-19, my calendar has been um, maxed out uh, with uh, all kinds of different COVID-related uh, meetings and video chats. Um, I'm part of a number of different institutional committees that keep me busy. There are leadership calls, um, certainly more uh, faculty meetings and those kinds of meetings to keep touch with everybody, um, but also been busy with um, participating in data sharing consortias. I'm sure every biomedical informatician in the country is, and I'll just mention too that I'm part of the first, um, or that Penn Medicine is part of, and that I've been helping with, and I know you, Marilyn, have also been helping with. Uh, the National COVID Cohort Collaborative, or N3C, is uh, a national consortium um, that's led by Melissa Handel from the Center uh, for Data to Health that's part of the NIH NCATS-funded CTSA program. Um, so this is a national collaborative to bring data together from across the country, put it into a centralized database, um, a secure database, and then provide a cloud-based platform where people can log in securely and analyze data. Um, so it's an ambitious project, but I think it has the potential to have a huge impact on the COVID-19 response, but also uh, on, on our national understanding of other, other diseases. The infrastructure could be used for other, other things, and that was certainly the original intention of CD2H. The other one that uh, I've been very active in is the Consortium for the Clinical Characterization of COVID-19 by EHR or the 4CE Consortium. And this is led by Zach Kohani and his collaborators and team at Harvard Medical School. And this is an international consortium with uh, a number of U.S. institutions, institutions from France, Germany, uh, and Italy, um, as well as Singapore. And we just submitted our first paper last week. So this got off the ground very quickly and we were able to aggregate and summarize data. Uh, I've also continued to be busy with grant submissions. Um, uh, you and I put in our uh, AI for Alzheimer's disease uh, resubmission and hopefully um, we, the reviewers are happy with our uh, revisions to that. Um, I've also been busy with annual reviews for my faculty. Uh, staff reviews uh, um, I'm going to be busy with for the next week or two. 
Uh, and I'm also finishing up the progress report for the Institute for Biomedical Informatics that's due uh, at the end of this week. And finally, I've been thinking a lot about the metaverse and um, realizing as I've been working from home um, for the last almost two months now, just how limiting our social media, our communication uh, software is, and just wishing that you know, thinking why why isn't there a metaverse, a place where we can all go and exist virtually uh, and interact with each other in a very uh, intuitive way? Uh, the technology's all there, but we just haven't put the pieces together to create the metaverse. And I'll I'll say a few more words about this uh, later in the show. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us at bmipodcast.org. You can send and feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at BMIR podcast and on Facebook. Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help us improve our visibility. My name is Jim Cimino, and I'm Professor of Medicine and Director of the Informatics Institute at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. You're listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is how can informatics help with the COVID-19 pandemic? So as I'm sure many of you have been doing over the past several months, Jason and I have spent a lot of time thinking about COVID-19 and the pandemic and how our field can be helpful during this time. And I know we've been doing a lot of projects and infrastructure building related to this. So we thought today we would talk about the different areas that we've come up with for how we can be helpful to our community during this time and in ways of around infrastructure as well as research. So we have 10 areas that, uh, that we'll talk through today. So the first one is billing codes for COVID-19 phenotypes. When the pandemic first started, I know that some researchers very quickly started to say, hey, can you look in your EHR? How many people have you had diagnosed with COVID? And people started to scramble and realized there was no ICD-10 code for COVID-19 pandemic because it didn't exist when they developed ICD-10. Um, so Jason, I don't know the exact details, but I feel like I saw the announcement just a few weeks ago that they have now created an international code for this, right? That's true. I think it went live uh, at the beginning of April. Yeah, so uh, luckily the informatics community kind of internationally figured this out quickly and got a structured code into electronic health records everywhere, which is really important for the medical community to be able to track the number of people diagnosed across the world. As much work as we've done this month on COVID-19, it's amazing to me that the billing codes have only been around for about four weeks. I know. All right, number two. Questionnaires for collecting data from patients and getting all of that information into registries. This is something that I have spent more hours over the last month than I care to admit 
or think through. Um, there are a lot of questionnaires and surveys that have been developed around COVID-19. And, and I've looked at a lot of them as we were trying to develop one at Penn. You know, at first we wondered whether we needed to develop a survey or not because there were so many other surveys already created. You know, we didn't want to just have duplicate efforts. But some of the surveys out there are really around just tracking exposures and diagnosis and looking at kind of patterns of where outbreaks are happening. Some of them are about how people are feeling and what symptoms they have. I think there's one that came out uh, of the Pinterest developers uh, group that's called How We Feel, that's really about the symptoms of COVID. There are others that have to do with uh, how you responded kind of post-hospitalization. There are questions about your hospital stay and how you're doing. We really wanted to target patients in that time frame, early in their diagnosis or even pre-diagnosis so that we could try to identify potential participants for clinical trials, which is what a lot of CTSAs do, which is kind of the motivation behind ours. But there's been a lot of work in the informatics community to bring these together, certainly to harmonize the way that we're asking questions, where we are asking the same questions to try to do so in a similar way so that data can be shared across cohorts, uh, getting them implemented in a digital format you know, right now when we're in a stay-at-home order in many states around the United States, we can't have people interact to deploy surveys. It has to be digital or by phone. And so we've implemented our surveys in REDCap, and, and I'm happy to put in the show notes, our survey is actually um, in a GitHub repository. So it's open source, freely available, the code book, the data dictionary. People are welcome to use it for anything that they would want to do. And we are writing a paper on it as well. But a lot of people are putting these questionnaires together kind of in collaboration using informatics technologies and techniques so that the data can be shared broadly. Um, I don't know, Jason, have you been looking into the questionnaires much or participating in any of those kind of broader collaborative conversations? I haven't, not directly, but um, I think it's really great what you've been doing here at Penn Medicine uh, to get uh, our questionnaire ready and get the database set up and um, I'm really excited about the information that's going to be collected. I think it will complement the EHR data nicely, and there will be a lot of things that we learn from these questionnaires that w will not be represented in the structured or unstructured data in the EHR. I'm uh, just curious what, what you think the response rate will be. These, these will be sent out to patients, uh, presumably after they test positive, and what do you think the response rate will be? How many people will actually take the time to fill fill these these out? That's a great question. You know, I obviously I hope it's really high. Um, I know, you know, in the first twenty four hours we had nine people fill it out, which I was pretty excited that uh, I think they sent it to about thirty and nine filled it out. Out of the um, thirty, it was evident that many of them at least kind of got through the consent page and just didn't finish. And so we do have it set up in REDCap to remind them. So they should get a reminder email in a couple of days. And so we'll see you know, at that point if they fill them out. Uh, so I certainly hope that it's high. I think it will depend on how sick they feel. So if people are not feeling very well, I think the likelihood that they fill it out would be lower, uh, which is certainly why we're waiting to send the information out to people who are, are either still inpatient or just released from the hospital. We wanna to try to give them some time to recover um, before we would reach out to them. 
But the things we're hearing from the clinicians who are on the front line uh, making the phone calls about the test results, they said patients are very motivated for research. They want to understand why some people are getting so sick from this disease and other people aren't. They want to be able to know who's at highest risk so that you know, we can protect our families in the best way possible. So, so I think patients are going to be motivated to participate, and I certainly hope that's the case. One of the other things I would add, though, that this has led us to learn, which I'm sure some people knew this, but this was not something that I knew, the, uh, the EPIC electronic health record has plugins already set up for REDCap that I guess I vaguely heard that they were linked, but because of this project, I've now learned how seamless it is, actually, to send out a REDCap survey, which is, you know, freely available. You could send it to anybody without knowing their email um, or contact in advance. You need some way to give it to them. You know, you could text it to them or email it, but you don't have to have all their identifiers stored in a database. And then when they fill out the results, those can get ported directly back into a table in the Epic Data Warehouse, which makes research so much easier to then link those data with the EHR you know, it's certainly a good way to adjudicate identity about who people are, but then to link it with all the other EHR data, I think is going to be seamless um, now that kind of those plugins are already built. So I think there's a lot of research opportunity around surveys that could be done to supplement an EHR. And this process has taught me a lot about how to do that for a lot of other projects, which nicely segues us to number three, which is the data warehouse. Um, I think you've been spending a lot more time on this than I have, but certainly having these kind of collaborative shared data warehouses that allow us to mine the data and ask questions, I think is just essential for doing COVID-19 research. Do you want to talk a little bit more about where that's been? Well, first, um, you know, when, when the crisis hit, um, of course, our health system wanted to know immediately what our numbers were. How many, how many patients do we have um, in the system and what kind of patients did we do we have? And so our health IT team had to scramble to set up an operations database where they could gather that data and then report it to the leadership. So they had a snapshot of what was going on on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis. And um, and I think health systems around the country, health IT groups around the country, have probably scrambled to set up that infrastructure um, so that everybody can get good good numbers on um, on patient populations. Um, and of course, we've been working, uh, we, we have a very comprehensive data warehouse here at Penn Medicine, but there's a lot of value in setting up a COVID-19 specific database data warehouse that can be used for research purposes. Um, and um, one of our main motivations for doing this, in addition to providing data to our investigators here at Penn Medicine, is to share this data with others through the consortia that we mentioned at the beginning of the of the show, um, and so we've been setting up uh, an I2B2 database uh, to be able to share data through the CTSA network, and uh, and that comes with a specific a biomedical ontology developed at the University of Pittsburgh that's specific for COVID nineteen to make it easy for us to um, to to know that we're all working with the same the same data and what the data relationships are. Um, so I think, uh, 
everybody in the country is probably um, setting up data data warehouses right now for COVID data for these purposes, but uh, very important activity and has certainly kept us busy. Absolutely. And, and in that, you kind of covered our next one, which is adopting a data model. I think the COVID-19 ontology that came out of Pittsburgh, you know, is a great one. I wonder, and I haven't spent a lot of time looking into this, but internationally, do you know what the informatics community in Asia and in Europe used kind of prior to some of these ontologies being developed in the US? I, I presume that they had some informatic ontology that they started to use and, and I don't know whether they've adopted this ontology that folks in the US are using or not. That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that, um, but we, sh we should definitely find out. But I, I can say that the national consortia, the N3C consortia that we mentioned earlier um, through the CTSA, the, through the, the CD2H program uh, that are building a national repository and infrastructure for analyzing COVID data are going to map uh, everyone's data uh, onto OMOP uh, and use that as the data model for data integration. That makes a lot of sense. So the next one is to participate in a national or international consortium to share data. Um, this has been pretty common in a lot of disease-specific areas for quite some time. Certainly in the human genetics community, consortia have really kind of dominated the landscape in kind of large genetic discovery projects for quite some time. But I think what we're seeing, and certainly I think have seen very quickly adopted here in informatics around COVID-19 is building these consortia. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, we need large sample sizes in order to really understand all of the confounding factors, the comorbidities, the medications, what outcomes people are uh, experiencing. And the only way to have a big enough sample size, it, even though there are a lot of patients at each health system, to bring those together with other health systems around the country and internationally are really what are gonna be needed to, to fully understand all of the facets of this phenotype. And so I've certainly seen more consortia pop up and get broad participation quickly than I have ever seen before. Usually it's like pulling teeth and dragging to get people to join. And I feel like with COVID-19, people were creating them and signing up as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, important activity, but very time consuming. The next one is the opportunity to mine EHR data for patterns related to clinical outcomes using methodology like machine learning. You know, one of the big challenges I think that healthcare providers are facing related to COVID-19 is the degree of variability in outcomes and severity and the suggested links that we see with clinical comorbid conditions and medication usage. And it's really hard to wrap your head around that without looking at the different patterns that you could extract from electronic health records that have that longitudinal clinical data on patient, uh, patient data sets. And so I think the opportunity for informatics to really play a key role in trying to understand these clinical outcome differences using machine learning is a great opportunity. Yeah, this is uh, one of the most exciting um, informatics activities, in my opinion, because this is, this is where we get to use all the data that we're aggregating from 
our electronic health record from external sources as part of these national and international consortia that we've spoken about, and to actually figure out what the data is telling us about this horrific disease and what is it telling us about um, comorbidities? What is it telling us about symptoms and severity? What is it telling us about the course of, of, of the disease? What is it telling us about medications and medication response? Uh, this is the exciting part. So this is, this is what we're all trying, working toward with all this data, data sharing and data harmonization, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one is kind of using that data, I think, from the EHRs, along with what we talked about earlier, which was some of that survey information that a lot of groups are collecting, is being able to model the transmission, mitigation, social distancing, um, et cetera, and using different informatics technologies like network science and agent-based models. I know there are a lot of groups working in this space trying to understand how the virus is spreading, as well as how well the different mitigation efforts like social distancing are working. Um, I think this is another area that we're likely to see a lot of informatics uh, publications and contributions in the months to come. Yeah, this really falls in the category of public health informatics. And I'm looking forward to a day when we really have access to all of this data about uh, the spread of this virus across the country and from person to person as much as we can. And it'd be interesting to model all of that uh, from a network science point of view, using things like agent-based models, et cetera, uh, mathematical models, so huge opportunities here. Absolutely. Uh, the next is in the area of surveillance. And I know I've seen some literature in archive, uh, bioarchive and MedArchive, using natural language processing of social media posts about COVID-19. Um, one of those is from one of our colleagues at Penn, Graciela Gonzalez, is doing some really neat studies using, using NLP with Twitter, trying to understand uh, kind of how COVID is spreading and, and really getting a, a similar representation of case numbers as what you see in some of the public health records. I don't know, have you seen other social media mining? Yeah, we, we have several other groups here at Penn doing this. I mean, Graciela has been... Uh, collecting COVID-specific tweets since January. So she jumped on this really early, and she's got a great database that uh, I think she's making publicly available and has just submitted a paper on. But Lyle Lunger from our computer science department and Raina Merchant from our health system here have also been uh, working with COVID data from uh, tweets. And uh, they've put together a real-time map that you can look at online that, that shows what's going on with COVID-19 across the country based on tweets, which is really cool. Yeah. I also think one of the surveys that's out is from uh, the one of the groups that participates is Pinterest, which is one of the other social media platforms. And I think that's the one called How We Feel. I think they're using that to also kind of link with social media around surveillance. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, over time how people have used social media to understand this disease from all different angles. It's uh, fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, the next one is uh, modeling hospital operations and response during a pandemic. So through the use of things like simulation and visualization, informatics can really play a key role in trying to understand kind of how the hospital worked and worked well and make some predictions and inferences about other ways that 
the hospital system could respond during the pandemic. I know I've seen uh, certainly not publications about this, but announcements about different things that hospital systems are doing. And I can only assume it's based on simulations and good visualizations that their informatics teams are doing. Well, I, I sincerely hope that every hospital in the country is learning how to deal with a pandemic and, and you know, how, how to um, acquire and distribute PPE, for example, all those kinds of things that are sources of major stress for our health systems across the country and around the world. And I hope that data then becomes available again so we can model it and understand it and learn from it. And so the last one uh, that we were going to talk about today is bioinformatics specifically, which is kind of one subset of informatics. There are a number of ways that bioinformatics can contribute in this COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly, I've seen a lot of work on looking at the viral genome and doing sequence analysis studies of the viral genome, trying to understand how it was derived, um, how it's mutating, Kind of what mutations have occurred in different continents of the world. Uh, there's some really interesting work in the bioinformatics space there. Um, the others are looking for host genetic and genomic factors related to either protection and risk from the virus or also back to the that idea about comorbidities. There are questions and there's been some early papers certainly using UK Biobank wondering if there are host genetic factors related to the com comorbidity conditions and then leading to those adverse outcomes. So is it a, a genetic predisposition, for example, to an autoimmune response that would lead to the cytokine storm upon infection by the virus? Um, and then the last one, and, and I'll mention that and then let you comment on all of these, is drug repositioning. Um, it's obvious that a lot of that is ongoing because many of the early trials for COVID-19 are not brand new medications. They are drugs that are being repositioned or repurposed that you know, previously it was perhaps a malaria drug or a rheumatoid arthritis drug. And so it's, it must be that they're using informatics techniques to identify some of the early um, suggested alternative medications to try, while at the same time there are, of course, a lot of people working on new drugs. But a lot of the repurposing is likely out of informatics analyses of these large medication databases. So I, I was so excited when I heard the UK Biobank was releasing COVID data, and they did it extremely quickly. I, I was just blown away at how quickly the UK Biobank made available COVID-19 data. And um, I already had permission, uh, I already had a project with UK Biobank on infectious diseases, and it was super easy to go in and request the COVID data, and we got it in no time at all. So they're making this data available, they're making it easy to get. Um, so I would definitely encourage anybody who's currently working with the UK Biobank and interested in COVID-19 to go in and, and add that component onto your project. Um, and uh, along the drug repositioning lines, I think we're probably going to see a whole bunch of papers come out in the coming weeks where we have all these knowledge bases on the bioinformatics side that we've built, tying genes to pathways and genes to drugs and drugs to clinical outcomes. And uh, we, ha we have these vast knowledge bases. And so you take a gene like the ACE2 receptor that is the 
the point of contact of uh, the coronavirus to the cell, uh, you, you can take that gene name and put it in these databases and immediately get a list of drugs that target that gene. You can infer other drugs that might target that gene. There's a gold mine of data sitting in knowledge bases, such as the Hedionet database uh, that was developed at UC San Francisco and here at Penn. Uh, there are others. Um, so I think that's a, uh, an opportunity for bioinformaticians to, to definitely get involved and have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. So those were the, the list of items that we came up with for how informaticians can help during this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there are probably others that we didn't think of, but if you are kind of wanting to contribute and trying to figure out where you might be able to contribute, hopefully some of these ideas will kind of give you a, a niche to look into with the, the methods and the techniques that you use. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Unfortunately, we have to start on a sad note. Marilyn? It is with a heavy heart that we share the passing of James Taylor. James was a kind of world-renowned bioinformatician from Johns Hopkins. He is probably best known for his contributions to the bioinformatics tool Galaxy. And more recently, I just started to work with James on the Anvil project. He's one of the PIs on Anvil, and I'm on the external um, advisory board for Anvil. So it was just sudden news, very sad, a big loss for our community. Um, we'll have a link to the obituary in the show notes. We would also like to note the passing of Dr. John Conway, who was called the world's most charismatic mathematician, in an article from The Guardian back on July 23rd of 2015. They go on to say, and I quote, Conway is perhaps the world's most lovable egomaniac. He is Archimedes, Mick Jagger, Salvador Dali, and Richard Feynman all rolled into one. He is one of the greatest living mathematicians with a sly sense of humor, a polymath's promiscuous curiosity, and a compulsion to explain everything about the world to everyone in it. According to Sir Michael Atia, former president of the Royal Society and arbiter of mathematical fashion, Conway is the most magical mathematician in the world, unquote. Conway's probably um, the best known by the public for his invention of a type of cellular automata called the game of life, which he interestingly did in the early 1970s um, by hand first before it was ever coded on a computer. Um, and I think that's how most people get introduced to Conway, although that's probably his least favorite way of being remembered. Um, he also did pioneering work on knot theory, number theory, and a number of other areas of mathematics. Um, in fact, I remember seeing him give a lecture at the University of Michigan when I was a graduate student back in the 1990s on knot theory, and he did this fabulous demonstration where he had a couple long, thick pieces of rope, and he had some students come down, and uh, they built a knot and then using mathematics unwound the knot. It was really very impressive. And I, I was really blown away by his presentation. Unfortunately, he succumbed to COVID-19 on April 11th of 2020 after a long and dis distinguished career as a professor uh, at Princeton. And there will be a link in the show notes uh, to uh, the Guardian article from 2015 that I mentioned that really talks about his life's work. 
Okay, moving on. A new article published in PLOS One uh, by Colavisa et al. studied more than 500,000 open access articles published by PLOS and BMC journals uh, for data availability. So that's what they were looking for, data availability uh, in these 500,000 papers. And what they found was that about 90% of the articles published in the year 2018 included a statement about the availability of the data used in the paper. So that was good. However, only 10 to 20% included a link to the data in a public repository. So what they did was they went back, uh, they went on to look at the citation impact of the papers and found that those included a link to the data where the data was available in a public repository for direct download had a 25% higher citation impact. Not surprising. And of course, uh, they make all their code and data available through a link uh, in their paper. Uh, so there will be a link uh, to this paper in the show notes. Yeah, that's a great find. And certainly for the younger folks uh, who are listening, I would strongly encourage you to make data available and the code available right when you do the paper because having been in the field for nearly 20 years, I can tell you it's really hard when somebody emails you and asks for some stimulated data from a paper back in 2006, and you have to try to find it and figure out if you still have it or not and where is it. The papers that we had the data publicly available on some database or in GitHub made it so much easier for people to reproduce results. All right, the next news item, we reported the last time that Epic was opposing a federal data sharing rule that would allow third-party apps to access clinical data through Epic and other commercial EHR vendors. Stat News is now reporting that Epic has dropped this opposition. This is good news for patients. Yeah, I agree, Marilyn. That is good news. And uh, patients will definitely benefit from all the third-party apps that will make uh, I mean, we're seeing that in the COVID-19 crisis, right? There are a lot of third-party apps to um, help patients through this crisis. And uh, so this will help pave the way for that. Okay, as I mentioned in the opening, I have been thinking a lot about the metaverse. So I thought I would um, say a few more words about this. And when I was a graduate student, um, I read uh, the book Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, um, that was published in 1992. Um, and Stevenson in that book coined the word metaverse. And the book is a, it's a science fiction book, uh, that mostly takes place in the metaverse, a virtual world where the, uh, the main character, uh, enters the metaverse and has encounters and, uh, you know, it's a place with a virtual economy, et cetera. Uh, and that book really, really impressed upon me this idea of a metaverse. And you have to remember that 1992 was when most of us were experiencing the internet for the first time in internet applications like email. I think it was around 92 or 93 that I sent my first email. And around that time, I had also been introduced to what are called MUDs, uh, multi-user dimensions and MUSH's multi-user simulated hallucinations. And basically these were text-based virtual worlds that lived on a server and you would tell net to them and you could walk around in these virtual worlds. You could play games, you could interact with people. There were virtual descriptions of rooms and areas. And um, so it, it was an early, very early, simple 
vision of the metaverse. And so I had a lot of fun um, exploring these virtual worlds, you know, and, and of course, having had just read Snow Crash, imagining a future um, with a real metaverse, uh, kind of like we see in the movies, uh, fictionalized in the movies these days. The closest thing I think we've come to a metaverse is the software Second Life, um, which has been around for more than 10 years, uh, which is a virtual world. It's um, a place where thousands of people can log in and roam around. Um, they can create content in the virtual world. They can create areas. Universities have built um, uh, virtual campuses in Second Life where people can congregate and learn and interact and have scientific conferences. Uh, businesses have built um, areas in Second Life. So Second Life, when it came out, was, I think, the first taste of what a metaverse could, could really be like. Unfortunately, Second Life never really took off. Um, and for example, there's only about a million users, active users of Second Life. It's still around. You can still play with it. Compared to the, you know, the billions that use uh, Facebook, for example. So, um, and and now now we have video games like Fortnite that uh, really give us a taste of the technology that could make a metaverse possible. And so I've been thinking a lot about this late, lately. I actually wrote an editorial that I'm working on getting published right now uh, about this. And um, there was a, a piece in the Washington Post from April April 17th that I saw on how big tech companies like Google and Amazon are actually planning for a near future with a metaverse. They are uh, assuming that this is going to happen. And I think, uh, you know, technology like Fortnite and the COVID-19 pandemic, which is forcing all of us to stay and work from home, uh, will add some momentum to this. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I have found the virtual experience to be a bit underwhelming. Um, you know, Zoom chats and email and, and Facebook uh, and Twitter, uh, you know, a lot of this technology has been around a long time and it just really hasn't come together in a way that makes our home life as exciting and as productive as we would want it to be. So anyway, um, I'll have a link here uh, to the Washington Post article in the show notes and um, keep an eye out for my, my um, op-ed. Hopefully it'll be published soon. Jason, I think that the next generation is on board with this metaverse. So having a, a teenager and a tween, so I have an 11 and 14 year old, and they are on either Fortnite or Roblox or both hours of the day. And you know, when we first started this stay at home, I was having a lot of anxiety about how much time they were spending in front of screens, whether it's the computer screen, the phone screen, the iPad screen. But I realized pretty quickly this is how you can hang out with a community of people. All their friends are there. So they are creating structures. They're creating games. My daughter was showing me she and a friend built a house and they have these jobs and they have families. And like, it's this whole world. It's like a whole life that her and her friends are living in this video game when right now we're in a world where they can't see each other. And so, so I think, you know, the next generation is, is living the metaverse right now. It's, it's us older individuals that need to get on board. 
Yeah, I mean, it really begs the question, why do we not have that for our work environment? Why, don't we, why do we not have the same experience your daughter's having in a video game in our work environment? We should have that. There's no excuse for it. The technology exists. It's just nobody has done it. And some of the discussions I've seen around this um, are around whether it should be, um, you know, is it, is it a big company like Google that's going to provide this? And is it going to be a commercial entity that we all sign into and subscribe to that's going to build the metaverse? Um, is it going to be open sourced? Is it going to be people like us that contribute code to an open source project on GitHub that becomes the metaverse? Um, that's probably partly why it hasn't happened is that, you know, nobody's been able to come together and figure out what the right way to construct a metaverse is that everybody would use. Facebook kind of did that by accident, but, um, how do you purposefully go out and build a metaverse that's as popular as Facebook? I think that's the big question. Okay, moving on. Um, Next up is a, a piece that I saw on uh, that was published by NPR, and the title was "Can Colleges Survive the Pandemic?" And this piece that was published on April twentieth suggests that the math is not pretty, and that many colleges and universities, especially in the United States, have been under financial strain since the two thousand eight recession, and the pandemic may push some of them past the breaking point. Uh, this article really caught my attention when I saw that the University of Michigan estimates that they could lose upwards of a billion dollars by the end of the year. That is just mind-boggling to me how a big state university like the University of Michigan could lose a billion dollars and what the impact of that would be on the university and the surrounding economy. Um, so I uh, sincerely hope our wonderful colleges and universities are all able to survive this, but the reality is some of them probably will not, and those that do will probably look different when this is all over. So um, we have a link here um, if you're interested in this, and um, you know uh, we'll uh, up update everybody as we see more articles on the fallout of the pandemic crisis on our universities. We have all seen the COVID-19 dashboard created by Johns Hopkins University in the news. If you haven't seen it, the dashboard tracks the spread of COVID-19 in real time across the U.S. It was created by Dr. Lauren Garter, who co-directs the Center for Systems Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins. There is a nice piece in Nature that gives us a look behind the scenes at the team that developed this important visualization tool that many of us have admired and depend on for making sense of the pandemic. We'll have a link in the show notes to this piece in Nature. Okay, next, uh, I ran across a great blog post by Martin Goodson from the Royal Statistical Society with the title, All Models Are Wrong, But Some Are Completely Wrong. This is, of course, a play on all models are wrong, but some are useful. And the piece makes the point that scientists and journalists have a moral responsibility to convey the uncertainty in the models they are presenting to the public. This is particularly important now with COVID-19 because things are moving so rapidly and science is happening rapidly and models are being communicated probably without full vetting. Um, and so, you know, he wrote this piece in response to some faulty models that were reported widely in the media, I think primarily related to COVID-19. And so um, the uh, authors come up with the following rules. First, um, 
and this is directed toward scientists and journalists, uh, number one, express uncertainty in any model or prediction. Number two, journalists should get quotes from experts before publishing a model or a result. Number three, scientists should clearly describe the critical inputs and assumptions of their model. And I think that's a big one. The assumptions are always so important and something we as scientists are not good at communicating. Number four, be as transparent as possible. Number five, policymakers should use multiple models to inform policy, not just one model in the event that that one model is faulty. And number six, indicate when a model was produced by somebody without a background in infectious diseases. So you could imagine that if uh, you know, some random person grabs some open data and produces a model and tries to communicate that, that you might express some uh, reservation if they are not an infectious disease expert. So um, I, I really like these recommendations. I think these are all common sense things, but they're, and they certainly apply to any scientific effort, but I think it's important to be reminded of these common sense things at a time when the science around COVID-19 is moving so fast. Okay, moving on. Uh, there is a new data science journal that might interest some of our listeners. Uh, the ACM IMS Transactions on Data Science just launched in March with its first issue. Initial papers covered topics such as group-based recurrent neural networks, convolutional neural networks for visual recognition. Uh, there was a paper on word embeddings and privacy in social media. Uh, the ACM, if you don't know, is the Association of Computing Machinery. This is the main professional society for computer scientists. And the IMS is the Institute for Mathematical Statistics. This is one of the, the big statistics um, uh, uh, societies. And uh, the journal is published by the ACM, but it appears to be a collaborative effort with the IMS. So we'll have a link here in the show notes. And as a side note, it's worth mentioning that the ACM Digital Library is freely available through the end of June to allow scientists working from home to access their publications. So kudos to the ACM. I'm sure many people are taking advantage of that. That's great. All right, our last news item is a personal one from me. Um, while we've been working from home during the pandemic, I have been able to cross one of the items off my bucket list or my goals list. and that is having a weekly podcast. Um, for the past three years, I've been an avid listener of a lot of weekly podcasts. And for about the last year, I have been thinking a lot about launching one myself. Um, one of the reasons it hadn't happened is I just did not have the time. I wasn't entirely sure who my audience was gonna be and what the focus was gonna be. But having all of this kind of extra time at home, it did give me a little bit of bandwidth to think about what the focus would be and the push to figure it out. So part of it was figuring out the topic, but the other part was figuring out the technology because I can't rely on our sound engineer, Michael, in our studio back at Penn because we're not there. So I had to figure it out at home. So I did launch, it's called Combining Academia and Life with Marilyn or the Calm podcast. It is on the issues that we face trying to achieve harmony between work and life as academics. Um, I have now published six weekly podcasts. So actually today 
was week six. So that'll give people a sense now when they do hear this from when we recorded this one. Um, the topics are related, not specifically to what we're dealing with with COVID, although the first couple of episodes especially have a little bit more about that just because that's what we're living right now. But it's things about how to kind of take care of yourself as a leader, how to lead your team through hard times, um, how to deal with imposter syndrome, um, how to manage your time. That was the episode this week is uh, time management. Cause I don't know about you, Jason, but I feel like we're living in a time warp right now. It's like at, the, at one point, I feel like every day is so long and slow, but at the same time, we've been home for two months and that doesn't seem possible. And yet it's May. Like, I, I don't know, time just seems like not real right now. And so uh, managing our time becomes really important when we seem to lose track of it. So uh, we can put a link in the show notes to that podcast. Uh, the uh, website is marilynritchie.com slash podcast, and it is currently up on all of your favorite podcast apps. Yeah, I uh, would definitely encourage everybody to listen to Marilyn's podcast. And uh, she has given a lot of thought to work-life balance. And um, she's probably uh, one of the world's experts at this point. And so um, I, uh, I personally have learned a lot from her, and I'm sure you will as well. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, your ideas for topics, and your thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending an email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. And as mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. We love to get feedback on Twitter, so please send us your ideas. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any new feedback to report to this time. I think everybody's been very busy with the COVID crisis. Now on to our software discussion. Each episode, we hope to discuss a useful open source software package. Today, our selection is AvidaEd. Jason is going to introduce this topic. Thanks, Marilyn. In honor of John Conway, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who helped motivate many to develop agent-based simulations, I thought I would highlight the Avita and AvidaEd software packages. Avita was developed by Dr. Charles Ofria and his collaborators as a platform for studying evolution. Avidians, or Avita creatures, are digital with a genome that is composed of assembly language-like commands that are evolved to perform functions such as Boolean logic operations. So these are like little computers, little programs, uh, with a fitness um, that is tied to their ability to perform computations. So each has its own efficiency and its own fitness uh, based on their, uh, their computational ability. Avidians reproduce with mutation and are under natural selection. There have been a series of high-impact papers published using Avita to model real-world evolving populations of bacteria. And Avita is a uh, very popular in the artificial life community. I've used it in a derivative software to study gene-gene interactions. Uh, the software is open source. It's on GitHub, and I've got a link here in the show notes if you're interested. And what's really interesting is that uh, on the education side, Avita was modified for student use by Dr. Robert Pennock, also at Michigan State University, where Charles Afri is. 
and their collaborators, resulting in what's called the Avita Ed software. Here's a short description of Avita Ed from their webpage. Avita Ed is an award-winning educational application developed at Michigan State University for undergraduate biology courses. Researchers and educators designed Avita Ed to help students learn about evolution and scientific methods by allowing them to design and perform experiments to test hypotheses about evolutionary mechanisms using evolve, uh, evolving digital organisms. Um, and um, I've got a, a link here to um, a recent paper um, in the American Biology Teacher Journal um, from some authors who evaluate, evaluated Avita Ed in an educational setting and concluded that it is a useful tool for helping students understand evolution. And they did things like before and after testing, uh, you know, comparing students before and after they had used uh, the software. So if you're interested in evolution, genetics, complex adaptive systems, simulation, and or artificial life, I highly recommend you try Avita and Avita Ed. And I think it would be interesting to, to think about uh, additional biomedical applications of this software. Uh, I bet it could be adapted to studying coronavirus and COVID-19, for example. My name is Genevieve Melton-Mukes, and I am a professor of surgery at the University of Minnesota and chief analytics and care innovation officer at Fairview Health Services. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our open data discussion. Each episode, we hope to discuss a useful source of open data. Today, our selection is Google Dataset Search. Jason is going to introduce this topic. Thanks, Marilyn. If you're not aware, Google has a dataset search tool that claims to search more than 25 million datasets that are accessible online. I did a quick search on the P53 gene and cancer, and it immediately returned over 100 datasets. One of the top links was to Figshare, where there was an Excel file with data and the corresponding figures from a PLOS One paper looking at P53 mutations and methylation in gastric cancer. I was impressed with how quickly I could browse and retrieve data. Included in the search were data from BioGrid, Reactome, Omics DI, and others. This is definitely a tool worth checking out, um, and it is now out of beta, so I assume it's been fully vetted and tested and ready for everybody to use. Uh, I found it extremely easy to use and was able to very quickly get to raw data, which is, I think, what, what people want. The webpage is datasetsearch.research.google.com, and we will have a link in the show notes to this resource. Thanks for finding this, Jason. This sounds phenomenal. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is work-life balance during the pandemic. I will introduce the topic. The idea for this topic came about because of a paper that came out in Nature, oh, maybe two weeks ago now, where they, the author wrote a, a list of 10 things to do to try to achieve better work-life balance during 
this pandemic. And uh, I'm going to read those 10 to you and then I'll make a few comments and, and I, I assume Jason will have a few as well. So these are the 10 things to focus on during the pandemic. Number one, schedule working hours. Number two, discuss your work schedule with others. Number three, create a morning routine. Number four, establish a dedicated workspace. Number five, plan your day. Number six, take regular breaks. Seven, prioritize social interactions. Number eight, get exercise and fresh air. Number nine, mark the end of your workday. And number 10, don't be too hard on yourself. So when I read this paper, I had to laugh a little bit because um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I created this work-life harmony podcast uh, and have now published six episodes. And I talk about all of these things, but not in the same episode. I talk about them in the context of different parts. So I have an entire episode dedicated to creating a morning routine. Um, it's something that I never used to have. I would roll out of bed, grab a coffee, and I don't know, like do something until I got in the shower, got ready and went to work. But I never kind of paid attention. And then at, at some point I read about morning routines and ever since I started doing something structured in the morning, I'm way more productive in that time between when I wake up and when I go to work. Now, now that we're home all the time and we don't actually leave to go to work, I started to fall back into that, like, well, I guess I, I have all the time, so I don't need to worry about what I do. And after a couple of days, I was like, nope, I just need to figure out a different morning routine for not having that other transition. Um, and so I do think that that one in particular is really helpful to make sure that you kind of get your day started off right, whatever you choose to do in that routine. I mean, for me, I exercise in the morning and I generally do some sort of uh, reading for pleasure and some sort of journaling. And that's kind of my routine. And then I do get ready for work as though I'm leaving the house, but then I typically end up in sweatpants or leggings and don't actually put on like pants with a button because. Well, because why? Nobody sees us. We don't have to. Um, so that one to me was a, a key. And then the other is the scheduling out the day. And they kind of talk about this in this article. There's the scheduling the hours, the having a plan for the day, and then marking the end of a workday. I feel like those all go together. You know, right now, it's so easy for you to work constantly because there is not that natural transition where, you know, back in the old days when we used to leave the house, you would get in your car and go somewhere or get on the train and go somewhere. And then you'd be in a different location and then you would leave the work location. And so there were those natural breaks that told you it's time to start work and end work. Well, now some of us haven't left the house for eight weeks. And so it's like one long work day and it's like we're sleeping on the job when we go to bed because we still are at work. And so I have found it really helpful to, you know, kind of set a time, like I'm done, I'm off the computer, I walk away and I try not to get back on it and give myself a good long break. Because that first week or two at home, I think I, I just had the laptop with me constantly and I just, I worked way too much. So um, if you haven't seen this article, we'll have it in the show notes. I would definitely, you know, try some of these tips. Um, if some of them don't work for you, I mean, obviously don't do them, but uh, 
trying to kind of figure out what what structure you need in the day to be productive during this time. And I will say that number 10, the don't be too hard on yourself, I think is super important. I mean, I do know some people who are feeling a lot of shame for not being really productive right now. And there are some people who are trying to take care of five kids and they're working from home. So like, yeah, they might not be that productive. There are some people who don't have kids who also are struggling to be productive. And I think try some things to get out of that, but don't be hard on yourself about it because that's not helping. So I don't know, Jason, have you implemented any of these things or come up with others that have been helpful during this most unusual work from home time? So um, <clears throat> I, uh, I really like this list. Um, uh, these, these 10 items really resonate with me and I, I think I've naturally adopted most of them uh, in, in my own strategy for working from home. Um, in fact, Marilyn, I think you would give me A's for most of these 10 items. Um, the one I'd probably fail at the most is number eight, get exercise and fresh air. Um, I have, I admit I've gone days without going outside. Uh, and I'm, I, every day I think, okay, today I'm going to go outside. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to get some exercise. And then I don't do it. It's just too easy to, to be kind of stuck. I don't know. For me, it's just too easy to be here in the house at the computer working, um, whatever. So, um, uh, I need, I need to be better at number eight, but I like, I like all these. I think I incorporate all these. I was curious, Marilyn, I, I'm not sure exactly what number two is. Discuss your work schedule with others. Why is that so important? I think it has to do with two things. One is if you're a leader, making sure that your team knows what kind of hours you're working so that they can know when they could reach you, but also that they know that you're not working constantly. Because, you know, one of the things that I know a lot of trainees do is they watch the physical cue of when does the boss or the PI come to lab and what time do they leave lab? And a lot of people believe it's their job as a student or as a postdoc to get there before the PI and to leave after the PI. Well, when we're all working from home, the trainees have no idea when we're working and when we're not. And so I do think it helps them know, like, like at five o'clock typically on most days, I start kind of letting the team know, and sometimes I'll just change my Slack status going to make dinner. And that way they know, like I have ended the workday, I am now transitioning to family time so that they feel free to do the same. So I think that's part of it. The other, and I certainly have had to do this with the, the people who live with me. So I live with my husband and two kids. I make sure that they know, you know, you can expect that I'm working from, eight or 8.30 until sometime between five and six. And it's possible some days I have a little break in that window, but otherwise I would assume, like pretend I'm at work. If you need help with your homework, you need to go ask your dad because I'm at work in those hours. Even though I'm physically in the house, I'm still at work and you need to assume that I'm doing something that I can't be interrupted. And, and we kind of have an agreement now that they text me or kind of peek into the office to see if I'm available. So I think it's, both the people at your home so that they know when you're available for other things. And then also for the people in your group to know when they can and can't kind of get your attention. Great. Yeah. Thanks. That was, that was helpful. I wasn't sure what that one was about. And, and I agree with you about number 10, don't be too hard on yourself. I, I think that's so important. This is a tough time for everybody. 
and uh, everybody has unique challenges. Some people are dealing with illness. Some people are dealing with uh, death or other challenges. Some people have young children that need constant attention. And, and so this list of 10 items, um, I think, uh, is you know, not easily accomplished for everybody, but certainly something to aspire to, something to work toward. Um, and, um, but yeah, this, this pandemic has affected everybody differently and don't be too hard on yourself. If you're one of those people that's having a hard time because of this, um, it's okay. It's, it's a period of time when I think the nation is very forgiving and we should all be forgiving, um, because each of us has unique challenges we have to get through. Absolutely. The, I talked about this on one episode of my podcast too. I've seen a lot of posts on social media from young faculty or postdocs who are worried that this will be the end of their career. You know, they've lost two months. They can envision they're losing six months. They're never going to recover. They should just throw up their hands and stop. And I've been trying to respond to them. And this is why I ended up talking about it in a podcast that, you know, everyone is experiencing the loss of time right now. It's not just, if it were one person, who just had a terrible year, that would be one thing. Although I would say we all have bad years and we recover from it. A career is a long time and one year doesn't make or break us. But right now, this is affecting everyone. And so across the board, productivity is going to most likely be lower for nearly everyone. People are going to be ill for periods of time. People can't get into the lab. And so I totally agree. Don't be hard on yourself. And, and I don't think that we should make any life decisions about our career based on our productivity in 2020. Like it just, this is a, a blip in terms of kind of what your normal productivity looks like. And I would add that, you know, if you're the kind of person that tends toward laziness, which I think all, plagues all of us from time to time, um, you know, it's important. And I, I think those kind of people are probably uh, having a hard time working at home, being isolated and getting motivated to work. And um, I would say, you know, this is a time to figure that out and work on it and see how you can overcome uh, laziness when it hits. And uh, because um, the better you're able to deal with that moving forward, uh, the more successful a scientist you'll be. Next up is our Informatician Spotlight. In this segment, we hope to give members of our community an opportunity to introduce themselves and their work. This episode, we have Dr. Philip Payne from Washington University. Hi, I'm Dr. Philip Payne, and I'm the director of the Institute for Informatics at Washington University in St. Louis. Tell me about Philip Payne and his interest in informatics. How, like, how did you come to be in the field of informatics? Like a lot of people in the field of informatics, I sort of accidentally arrived. Uh, in my case, I started out as an undergraduate studying uh, biochemistry and cell biology uh, and considering a career in medicine. And I happened to get a work study job. This was at UC San Diego, developing databases for large multi-center uh, clinical trials in the vision research domain. And what I learned from that was there was an opportunity to have a much broader impact by working in this space at the intersection of computation and medicine. 
And so very late in my uh, undergraduate career, I decided to pursue a graduate degree in informatics. At the time, I was very uh, convinced that I would sort of keep my hands dirty and really focus on building software. And so I went and moved to New York and I got a master's degree in what at the time was referred to as medical informatics at Columbia University. And then I went back to UCSD and there I led a team of software engineers building systems for large multi-center cancer research programs. And I, I always tell people we were just naive enough to believe that we could build an entirely web-based system for managing biospecimens and clinical data and patient-reported data and what we now call a translational research program before anyone called it that. Uh, and since we didn't know any better, we just went ahead and did it, even though that was crazy. And then fast forward from there, I went back, uh, realized that I wanted to pursue more graduate training, got my PhD and took my first faculty position at Ohio State University where I was really leading a clinical informatics group. And a few years later, found myself as a department chair and uh, really sort of learned to love building this environment where lots of faculty working across the full spectrum could really uh, have impact. And now I find myself here at Washington University in St. Louis doing exactly the same thing, building sort of a next generation home for informatics that's truly cross-cutting, not just in our medical school, but across our entire campus and with our health system. What is your vision for the Institute for Informatics? Because you've had the opportunity to come into Washington University and there was pretty much a blank slate here. So just tell me about that experience and your vision for this. It's interesting when you think about uh, a clean sheet of paper and how you're going to build something from scratch because you have no guideposts, no uh, safety net. It's really all about the visioning and thinking about where you can have the greatest impact. And here at Washington University, I, I quickly learned that there was great depth of expertise and capability in the basic sciences, in clinical research, in engineering, in business, and certainly we had an outstanding healthcare delivery system, but we didn't really have that connective tissue that stitched all those pieces together. Uh, as an informatician, I believe the ability to translate data into information and ultimately actionable knowledge is that connective tissue because the modern research environment, clinical environment, population health environment is entirely characterized by the production of massive quantities of data. And our biggest challenge is how do we filter all through that data, make sense of it, pick that data that's most valuable and go through that translational process from information and knowledge. And that's what I want us to be really good at here. I want us to reach across disciplinary boundaries, think beyond the lecture hall, beyond the lab, beyond the clinic, think about impact in the populations that we serve and really create an environment where that learning healthcare system, which is truly a behavior, not a physical object or platform, but a behavior is made possible in everything we do. And that's what we're trying to build here. So tell me, where do you think informatics is headed? You're talking about visioning. So what's, what's next? What do you see? I mean, it seems almost crazy to even try to look out five years at this point. When I think about the future of informatics, I think there's probably three big areas in which we're going to see dramatic change. One is actually revisiting the history of our field, which is going to be a renaissance in clinical decision support. And of course, the earliest examples of decision support are also the foundations of what was at the time AI and medicine and what is now today referred to as biomedical informatics. But I think now more than ever, we have the data and the computational ability, not to mention the understanding of human computer interaction, workflow, cognitive science, and decision science, such that we can really deliver complex information in the right time, place, and format in manners that before were not possible. And whether that is 
you know, delivering genomic testing results at the point of care or enabling patients to engage in shared decision making or intervening where people live, work and play before they even become sick in the first place, but rather to promote wellness. I think we're going to see a real renaissance in decision support. I think the second thing that we're going to see is that artificial intelligence and cognitive computing is simply going to become the norm. It's going to be a tool that we all use. And that means the informatics community increasingly is going to be charged with finding ways to educate researchers, clinicians, administrators, policymakers, and quite honestly, patients and community members such that they can intelligently select and use these types of methods because they will become a commodity. I, I have no doubt about that. And then I think the third big change is going to be that informatics is going to become less and less of a purely academic discipline and much more of an applied discipline where there certainly will continue to be investigators who will be pushing the frontiers of novel methodology and technology. But in equal part, I think we're going to see informatics practitioners everywhere in our educational research and clinical care environments. And so we're going to have to find out how do we train and support those professionals that are really out in the field practicing informatics and not just studying informatics. So I'm going to roll back real quickly to the second point you made, where you're talking about artificial intelligence and the fact that we have these data sets available. So the flip side of that coin is patient privacy and how do we protect that data? And one of the things that has come up recently is this whole Project Nightingale fiasco um, between Google and Ascension. So how do we, while making the data available and continue to improve these technologies, also protect patient data and patient safety and, and you know, make people feel secure about their privacy? So recent news about projects, whether it be the partnership between Google and Ascension or uh, in the not so distant past, uh, the similar relationship between Google and the University of Chicago have led us to sort of increasingly focus on this inflection point where we are collecting and generating more data than ever before. And we're very focused on how we can generate insights from that data that improve the quality and safety of care. But at the same time, we also have increasing understanding of the risks to individual privacy and confidentiality. And what we're going to have to do as a community is come to some common ground where we can strike that balance that needs to exist at that inflection point. Because there is benefit to patients and communities if we can responsibly use the data that's produced every day in the clinical environment to gain insights that improve the care that those individuals receive, their families receive, their communities receive. And partnerships with industry will be part of that simply because of the realistic understanding that a lot of the computational capabilities and expertise that we need live in the industry uh, sector rather than in academia or healthcare provider uh, organizations. But at the same time, we're going to have to do that in a way where everyone is comfortable and understands when, where, why, and how their data is being uh, shared and used in this capacity. And I think one of the biggest questions in front of us right now is how do we appropriately engage our patients and communities so that they can understand and be part of that decision-making process, but also do so in a way that's scalable and recognizes the common good that's produced when we all work together and leverage that data to improve the way that we deliver care. And I think that's going to be a tough conversation and one that we haven't had. But I will say that from my standpoint, I think of this as a partnership that has to exist in a triad between industry, healthcare provider organizations, and the researchers affiliated with them, and then patients and communities. And all three parties need to be at the table having this conversation in a very clear and transparent manner. 
it seems to me that there's an appetite among especially folks who consider themselves in the rare disease state to collectively pool their information and willingly share it and improve care and research in those areas. Do you think that's where we start to dip our toe into the water instead of just exposing these large data sets that I think people ultimately fear are going to be used against them? So I think it's really two questions. And both are great questions. So the first is, where do you start? Where do you start building this trust between all the partners that need to work together? And I actually do believe that the rare disease community is a really uh, excellent place to start. I have personal experience with a number of rare cancers where I have been working with patient communities that, in fact, want to pool their data in the form of registries or other data assets that can be shared with industry and academically based researchers. Their motivation is quite simple. Uh, they would like to make sure that their family members, their colleagues in the disease community, and future people diagnosed with this disease don't have the same experience that they do. And I think it's a great example where people are coming together and through sort of their own decision-making are saying, I want to volunteer my data to improve clinical outcomes. I think of it as not being that much dissimilar from when people get a driver's license and say, I want to donate my organs to save another life if sort of the worst case happens to me. I think the same applies in these communities, which is I want to donate my data to improve the care that my fellow uh, community members receive and future people diagnosed with this disease. And so I think the motivation and the understanding of the benefits uh, that would allow for this important conversation around how we use this data responsibly to improve care is really uh, manifested very well in the rare disease community. And we can learn a lot working with these very empowered, very... Uh, energetic individuals that want to push the horizons of research in their respective disease areas. I think, though, you, you brought up a second point, which is this issue of, well, what happens if we pool clinical data and use it for research? Could it be used against us? And I think it's a really important question and one that doesn't have an easy answer. There are laws in existence, such as GINA and others, that would argue that our personal genomic or other data should not be able to be used against us for things like employment, insurance, or other purposes. But we don't have a lot of great examples that show us what that looks like in the real world. And I'm not convinced that right now we have the right models to make everyone involved in this data ecosystem comfortable with that uh, issue of how do we protect against inappropriate use of this data and insights. And there's important ethical and legal and social work that will have to be done to address that. There will be no data ecosystem in healthcare that improves everyone's lives if we can't tackle this fundamental problem. And it's not a technical problem, it's a cultural, and as I said, ethical and legal and social problem that needs to be addressed. Um, anything else that I missed or anything else, you know, to, to kind of tag this out, I guess. It's sure, I, the only other thing I would say is that, you know, I'm often asked when I speak uh, locally and nationally, internationally, about some of the issues that you raised around the balance between patient privacy and confidentiality and our ability to use these new informatics methods to gain insights from large amounts of data. And the one really important uh, message that I want people to think about is that part of the critical question that has to be asked is how are we protecting the well-being, privacy, and confidentiality of the patients from whom this data is being derived? And that's absolutely essential, but it's only half of the equation. Because the other half of the equation that every single patient and family member should be asking is, how are you putting my data to work to make sure that my care improves, that the care my family receives is better, that the care my community receives is better? And I think we have an ethical and moral compact with our patients to both protect their privacy 
and also make sure that we put that data to work every single day so that we're learning and improving their care. I think our patients expect that from us, and so we have to find a path forward. So I would encourage everyone when they're thinking about this, we need to ask both questions. How are we protecting these patients? And also, how are we making sure we're putting that data to work so those patients' lives get better? And everyone should expect that we're able to do both. And I think that is the biggest challenge in front of us as a community. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Jason, any closing remarks? Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. I, th I thought this has been a, a great episode. And, um, you know, I, in thinking about the pandemic response, I, I just wanted to say that I think, um, you know, informaticians are in a really strong place to have a positive impact on uh, the COVID-19 disease and the response to the disease. Um, you know, for the last 20 years, we've been building electronic health records. We've been building data warehouses. We've been building biomedical ontologies to describe data and integrate data and harmonize data. Uh, we've been building machine learning algorithms to analyze data, um, you know, visualization tools, um, clinical decision support. We've put a lot of effort into all of these things. And it's an exciting time because I think we're seeing how all of these tools can be brought to bear on what is a, a very important and uh, scary um, public health issue. And uh, so, I, you know, kudos to all the informaticians. I think this is a time for us to shine and show what we can do and that, that we are an important part of the healthcare process. And, um, you know, I, I love this quote from Bruce Lee. Uh, I'm a Bruce Lee fan. Uh, and the quote is, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. And, you know, this is a tough time for all of us. Um, but we as informaticians can, can have an impact. There's a lot we can do to help respond to this crisis. And we should. And we should step up and, and use that expertise as much as we can. It doesn't mean every single person should. But those of us that can should and and i think we are in a position of having an impact how about you marilyn any closing thoughts yeah well related to what you just said i think in addition to spending some of our efforts trying to do things directly to help with the covid 19 pandemic which as we've talked about earlier in the podcast is certainly something informaticians can do one of the other things that I've been thinking about is how I feel like this is a time for informaticians to kind of carry the workload for some of our colleagues at our institutions and in our departments that cannot do research right now. So for a lot of the wet labs, if they are non-essential, which basically right now at most institutions means not working on COVID-19 related bench research, they are shut down. And so I know a lot of my friends that are in wet labs are really struggling trying to figure out what to do with all these months of time, what to have their graduate students and postdocs work on in this kind of uncertain amount of time that they're going to be out of their labs. And for informaticians, we are in a fortunate position where we can quite literally do our work from anywhere. We need a computer and an internet connection. And as we talked Earlier, you know, our labs have transitioned really well to working from home. Yes, it's really hard. Yes, we're in a crisis. It's not business as usual, but we are able to do the work. And so I think 
as much as we can use that as motivation to work hard on behalf of our colleagues who can't and be productive for our department and be productive for our institute and be productive for our university so that you know at the end of this they can look back and see you know look our institution did publish papers during this time a lot of them might be either covid related or informatics and so use that to motivate you to do some work even if it's not covid related work you can do your science and so i think we should try to do that um the one other thing that i thought about related to the metaverse that we talked about earlier is that around scientific conferences you know i've seen a few things in the media lately about how travel is going to be different for a very long time and conferences are likely to be virtual for quite some time and it's unclear when we're going to be able to be at big conferences with thousands of people again and so a lot of conferences are going online it occurs to me that if if conference organizers could figure out how to use or build a metaverse to create a conference-like experience that is not just Zoom or BlueJeans or pick your, your WebEx tool. It's not just people's faces sitting there kind of half listening to talks, but a way to actually network and interact in a conference environment online. I think those conferences are going to really take off and be really important, especially for the, the junior faculty, the postdocs, the students. You know, networking at conferences is a huge part of their trajectory. You know, the way that great students get postdocs is by meeting postdoc advisors at conferences. And the way postdocs get faculty positions is by meeting people at conferences. That goes away without travel. And if it's just these Zoom calls, for conferences, that's not going to provide the networking opportunity for the young folks. Us older, more established investigators know each other. So it's not so hard to send chat messages kind of off to the side or text or email one another or even have conversations if they have kind of working group type environments. But for the younger folks, I think we need something like a metaverse to help them do that networking piece when we can't travel. All right. Well, I think that is it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. 